If you would, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We are starting into verses 5 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 5 through 10. This section I call God's use of suffering. And I know everybody's excited about that topic. If you would please follow in the reading of the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 5, chapter 12, 2 Corinthians. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do wish to boast. I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, teach us this morning the amazement that I have uh, with this man, Paul. And yet, Father, the magnificent glory of you through this man. Father, you told him he must suffer much. And we have looked at it, and truly he has. And yet, Father, this text means so much to me that I pray that my brothers and sisters these days and weeks that we will go through this will understand the power of this text and understand the risen Lord and the power of Your Spirit in Your people. Help us, Lord, to understand, but help us to stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To You, my King, my Lord, and my Savior, in Christ's name, Amen. Those of you who have been with me for a while know that as I get into each new section, I kind of lay a foundation that we're working off of the context of the section. We finished up the marks of a true apostle last week, and now we're moving into this section. And it all kind of goes together. But I want to share with you uh, uh, some basic things that people, for whatever reason, I don't know. um, When you look at Scripture, you're going to be looking at two different things. And that's all you get. You're either going to look at doctrine or you're going to look at a narrative. Right? Doctrine is the character of who God is. All right? The narrative is the action. Let me give you a for instance. If you go read the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. All right? And yet you see a narrative and it plays out in front of you. Right? Now, if I don't have some doctrine to go with that, that book's brutal. All right? it's, uh, the book of Job is that way. If you don't have some doctrine of who God is, all right, you've got problems. It's like the book of Romans. You take the first 11 chapters of Romans, it's pure doctrine. 
So when he jumps into 12 into the narrative, you've got all of this on who God is and what God does. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of glorification, the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Therefore, present yourself as living sacrifices, holy and pure. All right. See, so these are the things that you have to deal with when when you look at Scripture in your own times. Okay, are you looking at doctrine? It's explaining to you who God is, His nature, His character, His attitudes. All right, or is it someone saying, "I understand Him, and therefore I'm doing this." All right. So whenever you're looking at scripture, you're either looking at narrative or you're looking at doctrine. In some cases, you'll get the two together, but very seldom. I mean, in, in, in like, take Romans or Ephesians. Okay, the first two chapters are are just golly deep doctrine, and then all of a sudden he starts dealing with marriages and kids and employees and employers and all the rest. But see, he don't deal with that until he says, "Here is God." All right. I see a lot of people who want narrative and they don't know who God is. Well, then that's like being Job. See, Job didn't see what was going on in heaven. I mean, Job didn't get the book of Job and says, get ready. All right. Now, the apostle Paul was told, you must suffer much for my namesake. And God didn't let him down. All right, so when you're looking at Scripture, always keep this in mind, all right? These verses 5 through 10, for me, are second only to 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, 2 Corinthians Corinthians 3.18 is my favorite text in all of Scripture. But when I look at chapter 12, verses 5 through 10, it's a narrative based on doctrine that is essential to everyone who would ever believe. So let me give you a little foundation here. This section will have life-changing power on each and every hearer. I guarantee it. Because the simplicity is that it deals with something that is universal. I don't care what country you're from. I don't care what continent you're hanging out on. I don't care what your societal background is. I don't care what your ethnicity is. The nature of this text is dealing with human trouble. And let me be honest with you. Trouble is universal. The Bible says man is born into trouble. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. You're going to have it. Listen, it's just the way it is. We are fallen creatures in a fallen world. Sin has struck. And when sin comes, it causes trouble. It might be a tornado. It might be a hailstorm. It might be an earthquake. It might be a forest fire. It might be a disease. It might be your spouse. We are personally not able to remove ourselves from trouble. 
You can't get away from it. It can be emotional. It can be physical. It can be marital. It can be domestic. It can be economic. It goes on and on and on and on. And I don't care who you are. It's part of life. You are either in trouble right now. You are getting out of trouble right now. Or you're getting ready to enter into trouble right now. And you get these little brief, ah, and then back at it. Listen, that is the world. Okay, and let me tell you something. Don't feel like you're special. I know people say, well, you just don't know. No, I do. I understand completely. But you know what? There ain't a person on the planet Earth who's ever lived that hasn't experienced it. So you ain't special. I know people, listen, I, I, I will agree. You may not agree with me on this, but I will agree with this. I despise trouble. Okay? I despise pain. I just don't like it. But you know what? I still go through it. All right? And, and I want you to all understand that because we have times when we think, you know, well, this is just, you know, it's not just you. That is our world. I'll be honest with you. I'm not a theologian, but I don't know any better text dealing with trouble, trials. Paul shows, it shows Paul in, in this context is probably at the deepest pain of his entire existence. Apart from the pain of his own sin and apart from the trouble that is sometimes self-inflicted. We sometimes will put ourselves in the trouble of shame. We may put ourselves in the trouble of guilt. Uh, but understanding that that has all been dealt with by the grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This would be Paul's deepest human pain. Okay, so if you think about the Apostle Paul and you think about his ministry... This is where we learn to deal with human pain and suffering in the most severe case. And so we should really pay attention. This text shows us the purposes of God in our trials. Why? Paul is in his deepest heartache at the writing of this letter. Our deepest pain. Now listen, our deepest pain are usually inflicted on us by other people. Other people. Have you ever... I had a guy one time before salvation, he said, you know what? There is nothing but a hair's thin thinness between absolute love and absolute hatred. And I was like, well, that's kind of crazy. And then I've lived long enough to say, you know what? He's right. Okay? You don't believe me? Look at some of marriages. I have watched people talk about their spouse in ways, ways they would never talk about a stranger. Okay? And you just sit there and go, whoa. You married Lucifer. <laughs> so, but, but I've never seen anything like it. But if you're really honest, and the closer that that is, the greater the trouble. Listen, we can have trouble with money. Okay? That's usually self-inflicted. 
Right? That's why we have an industry called advertising. They want your money. Okay? You need this. Are you sure? Absolutely. I've seen it on TV. All right? And it's always the best and the brightest. I'm always confused on these. Uh, some of these. They're always buy one, get one free. You can't even give them things away. Okay? But you watch it and it's always that way. That there's nothing as painful as suffering we go through at the hands of others. The closer we are to them, the more we arm them. Hear what I said. The closer we are to them, the more we arm them to inflict pain on us. All right. And you know what? We all know this. The ones who, who can hurt us the most are the ones we are the closest to. Why? Because we armed them. We armed them. It's amazing the pain friends can place on friends. Three men that I am fans of. Okay. And I'll just go through and give you a brief on their lives. One was uh, Jonathan Edwards. Most people consider Jonathan Edwards to be the greatest theological mind that the United States ever produced. Some of you have heard of the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's Jonathan Edwards. Okay, uh, He pastored a church for 22 years in uh, Massachusetts. All right, 22 years. Maybe it's Connecticut. All right. He, most people believe he was the spark that ignited what was we call the great revival, the great awakening. Okay, he did that. He was there at the very, very beginning. He's the one who influenced um, Whitefield and all of these other guys who all of a sudden picked it up and ran with it. And a lot of people said it was sinners in the hands of an angry God that did it. Okay, he was in his church. This makes me a little nervous. He was in his church for 22 years. Okay. Preached four times a week to the congregation. Large congregation. Huge congregation. All right. After 22 years, the congregation voted him out. You know why? He preached that you should not take the Lord's table if you're not a believer. After he preached that sermon, they had a congregational meeting and voted him out. Okay? And nobody wanted him. Maybe the greatest theological mind this country has ever seen. And he began pastoring 15 Indians. He was heartbroken. All that tells me is that just because you're preaching truth don't mean they're listening. All right. I mean, if you preach to these people four times a week for 22 years and they conclude you're mean spirited because you don't want people taking the Lord's table if they're not saved. And they vote you out. uh, Pack your bag. A university wanted him to come on and be president. And he refused it because he felt like that God, by setting him out of the church, had disgraced whatever he had done, and he would just stay with the Native Americans. This man was sick. He was heartbroken. 
They finally talked him into being the president of the university. You know what school it was? Princeton. He died within six months of taking the job. Charles Hadley Spurgeon. Same thing. Same thing happened to him. He was considered the prince of preachers. You know what? They buried him in the back of a warehouse. He's not even buried in a cemetery. You've got to find somebody to go find it. I went and found it. I went over to his church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and I said, you know, where's he buried at? And they said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And I said, well, where's he buried at? And he said, over behind the warehouse district. You can't miss it. And I was like, the warehouse district? And I thought, well, maybe, you know, London, it's, you know, who did what? And I went back around through these alleys and streets and all the rest of it. You come to this warehouse, you come around, and there's a tombstone about the size of that speaker right there, Charles Hadley Spurgeon. And I'm sitting there going, and it's not a cemetery. But he started speaking on a thing that was called the downgrade controversy. And he says, once you take the step off of doctrine and you begin allowing the people to sway your message, you will be on a slippery slope that will be a downgrade and you will eventually hit the bottom. And the Baptist Union came against him. The prince of preachers. We still preach him. There's people who read his sermons. The prince of preachers. And they voted him out of the union. He went into the south of France. Within four months, he was dead. Okay? He was in that church for 26 years. You know, I got 21 coming up next month. (laughs) I bet you there's not a university out there that wants me as president. (laughs) But anyway. Last but not least, and he's not dead, is Dr. MacArthur. All right. I remember talking to him one afternoon. (laughs) And he talked about every year they have what is called the Founders Memorial Weekend at Moody Church. Moody Church is in downtown Chicago. Okay. Big tabernacle thing. All right. And they had asked Dr. MacArthur to come in and preach a message during Founders Weekend. And so he took it as an honor. And he said, it's kind of funny, he says, because he felt bad. He didn't know if he had the flu or what was going on. And he said, uh, he stayed in this little, he said it was uh, orange shag carpet in his hotel. He says, I believe it was in need of renovation. But anyway, but anyway, he, he, he says he stayed there. And he decided, then he got ready, got his message together. And he goes in to the church And a guy is standing there handing everybody a little envelope. Okay, just a little envelope. And they hand it to Dr. MacArthur. And he takes it and he says, well, thank you very much. And he goes and takes his place where he's supposed to sit. So he opens up the envelope. Okay. When he opens up the envelope, it says the 90 heresies of John MacArthur. And they're listed. He folds it back up like, wow, there you go. He says, I should know these. (laughs) But anyway. He goes up to preach and he turns around and looks and everybody in that auditorium's got one of them letters. 
So I asked him, did you change your message and deal with all 90? <laughs> he said, no. He says, I preached what the Lord laid on my heart. Okay, so I want you to think about that for a second. Here's Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, and John MacArthur, and the Apostle Paul. And you think you'll be immune to this? You take a stand on this book, they're coming after you. And you know what? They'll make it up. I've been here 20 years plus now, and I've had them make it up. And it hasn't changed. There are those you will give your best to. You will wish to encourage. You will wish to grow them. You will become extraordinarily close to them. And then the possibility of pain grows exponentially. My greatest wounds have come from people that have poured more into their lives than anybody else. You know what's amazing about the person who wrote out the 90 heresies of John MacArthur? It was a friend of his who had asked a favor that he could get his son into the master's college for free if John would help him, and John helped him. Because he was a very dear friend, and he couldn't afford the tuition. John underwrote the kid's tuition. Try that. The deepest pain of this life will be inflicted by those whom we care for the most. And that was what the Apostle Paul was going through with the writing of 2 Corinthians. Remember, he's already visited twice. This is actually the fourth letter that he's written to him. And these people have broke his heart. He had a great love for the Corinthians. And an amazing love, actually. He had loved them literally into the kingdom. He had loved them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then... Here come the accusers. Here comes the false in behind him, making any silly accusation that you want. And the lies that they threw out were just solely there to discredit the man. If I can discredit the messenger, then I can discredit his message. Okay? There were little papers of the heresies of the Apostle Paul floating around in the church in Corinth. And these he loved so they bought in to the lies. They bought into the lies. They were believing the false accusers. Now let me ask you a question. How crushing is that? See, it's one thing to be attacked. You stand on truth today, you're going to be attacked. I guarantee it. I don't care what the topic is. It's quite something else when it's the intimacy of the spiritual realm. Because that hurts. That hurts. My passion is to present every man complete in Christ. And the only way that I know how to do that is rightly dividing truth. I don't have any other plan B. And yet, that's where people will attack me. I have been attacked over and over and over and over. I was attacked by our denomination. You know why? Think about this. I preached the message, and I, in the message, I was, it was Acts 20, where Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elder, the blood of the innocent man is not on my hands, I have not forsaken the full counsel of God. Okay, that was my text. And I made this statement. 
There are not multiple interpretations of Scripture. And they got mad at me. You can't say that. Well, that's how I read it. Now I know why Jesus says, have you not read? And they got mad at me. I haven't been back since. I'm not losing any sleep, but anyway. It is in this pain that we can learn how to deal with pain. This trouble. Okay, that's why this is here. Listen, I already told you, I resent suffering. I resent pain. But you know what? Until we understand what God is trying to accomplish by it, you're going to be in it more. You're going to be in it more. The greatest time... Now, listen. You're not going to like this. Okay? But you can't deny this. All right? The greatest times of your spiritual development are in the greatest time of pain. Okay? And I don't like that. But you know what? We are thick and lumpy. And God says, I want you to depend on me. And you say, all right. But how many of you go into the grocery store and say, give us this day my daily bread? No, don't worry, Lord, I'll cover it. Wheat or whole wheat? What do you want? Why is it we have to teach people to say thank you? You ever think about these things? Because that's the depth of our depravity. And so when you start looking at this, God has to take you, if you want to use the really cool stuff, the refiner's fire. I got news for you. It's hot. All right. I don't like the refiner's fire. I appreciate it usually after I've come through it and I'm in the cooling time. But I don't like going through it. The valley of the shadows of death. How about I go around and look down on the valley, Lord? Paul, Jesus told Peter, the devil wants to sift you. He wants to shake you and see what falls off. And if I'm Peter, I'm saying, and you told him no. He says, no, I prayed for you. That's it. You prayed for me. Yahoo. We need to understand what God is accomplishing by the trials, the troubles, the sufferings that we... Every one of us. There isn't anybody immune. Your age doesn't immune you. Our greatest spiritual development is the greatest time of our pain. You know what? And you will learn greatly through that pain. You will see the hand of God in that pain. What I try to get people to do, and I'll be honest with you, very little success, okay, is know what this says first. So when the pain, which will come, you know the nature and the character of God. So when you're eyeball deep in the pain, you will see God. Usually what I see today is I don't see God until I'm eyeball deep in trouble. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm listening. What do you want? What do you want? And it's usually, get me out of this. Instead of saying, where's the hand of God in this? I had, to, I was with, at Columbine. I went up Columbine the day of the shooting. 
Horrible. I was in the library. I was with some cops uh, and these families. And, and the place was packed. And these school buses would come over from the school over to the library. And the kids would get off and the parents would run out to the kids. Okay, and then they'd all get in their cars and celebrate. And as the day wore on, your crowd in the library kept getting smaller and smaller. Okay? So we waited, and it was about dark, just about dark. And all of a sudden, the sheriff shows up. He comes in. You've got these family members sitting there. And he says, there aren't any more. What do you tell them parents? Your kids ain't coming out of that building. And all I could think was, Lord, how are you glorified in this? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, because everybody has the same questions at that time. What makes you think God did this? You're the one that said you don't want prayer in school. So anyway, I was up there the next three days. And I got to know some people. And I, I remember the district attorney for Jefferson County, Dave Thomas. And uh, it started becoming a circus. I mean, there was tents and trucks and cameras and lights and everything else. And then God, in his infinite humor, made it snow about 13 inches of real wet, nasty snow. And I was like, everybody's going to be happy here. So I remember going up there. It was early one morning because it's still kind of dark. And, and I seen Dave, and I got a cup of coffee for him. I walked it over. And he had this big old stack of files. I mean, huge manila folders. And he's getting ready to do a uh, an interview with Katie Couric. That's what he told me. I'm going to go talk to Katie Couric. I'm happy for you. Uh, and so I gave him a cup of coffee. I said, how are you doing with this? And, and he says, uh, I, I just can't get over this. And I was like, well, yeah, me either. And he said, he says, you see this? He says, this is the records that we have. Do you know that Jefferson County spends... More money per student than any place else in Colorado. You know that we have the best paid teachers. Do you know that we have the best working relationship between the psychiatric profession and our student body? Our counselors are best paid. And we have a better working relationship with the police department than anybody else in the state. And he says, how can something like this happened. And I immediately knew what God did. God said, this is where I'm glorified. This is man at his best. You get Columbine. And I thought, you know what? You're right. You're right. And I, I remember hearing all the things that I heard and how we're going to fix it and how we're going to do this. You know what? We ain't done nothing. Ain't done a thing. Okay? It's still a time bomb waiting to go off. I hear enough things coming out of the high schools and different schools here in just Castle Rock that you're like, any minute now, somebody's going to light one of these fuses and we're going to get the same repeat. Because they're not assessing the problem. Problem ain't got nothing to do with money. Okay? And, and I, I, you, it is a spiritual condition. This is very difficult. This is a powerful text to show the purposes of God in our pain. 
And you know what? There's some of us going to go through worse pains than you could ever dream of. I've dealt with people before that I'm like, I am so grateful that's them. I mean, that sounds cold-hearted, but glad that wasn't me. I've watched it. It is important to know and to understand this section because it is the most helpful, most powerful, the most amazing text that is in a narrative form. But you still have to know who is God. Got to remember that in this flow, we are looking at chapter 10 through the end of the book. That is the context. And remember how it started. What is it? It is spiritual war. If you are a minister of Jesus Christ, you are at war. If you're not, then you've been taken prisoner. It's that simple. Or you have deceived yourself. We are now in this section, verses 5 through 10, we will see Paul's emotions. And yet we will see through this emotion and through the Apostle Paul's suffering, we will see what God accomplishes in that suffering. Paul's heart is wide open. These people, they are questioning his integrity. They're questioning his character. They're questioning his virtue. They're questioning his honesty. They are even questioning his love for them. And his friends are falling in line with the accusers. They even question his wisdom, his calling, his leadership, even his motives. Paul hurt. What you see here is a man who hurts. Who hurts. But you know, we've already looked at it. This man suffered. Jesus told him, you will suffer greatly. Chapter 11, 23 through 27. Hey, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. I was stoned once. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I spent in the deep. Frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my countrymen. Dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers from among false brethren. I have labored in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And for apart from such things, there's my daily pressure of my concern for the church. I don't know any other mortal perhaps, who has suffered more than the Apostle Paul did for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you think about the Apostle Paul, you've got to know that he is very aware of physical suffering. And yet, this what was going on in Corinth was worse. His daily concern is beyond the external. These external sufferings, these are tough. Paul's not telling you that they're not. But he says, it doesn't compare to my concern for the body of Christ. A greater concern than the physical was the emotional, the spiritual of the people that God placed in his life. And that they had turned on him. The Apostle Paul was devoted to the bride of Christ. Verse 29 of chapter 11, he says, Who is weak without me being weak? Now you think about that for a second. Look around the body of Christ right now and ask yourself a simple question. If somebody in this body is weak, do you feel weak? 
If someone in this body is going into sin, does it cause you to burn inside? We don't have a love for the bride of Christ anymore. I grew up in this church and I understand it because I was exposed to some people who had been through the ringer. Henry Puyntek had been a survivor of Bataan. He had a love for the church. A passion for the church. Ruth Henry had buried two husbands through World War II in Korea. And she had a love for the church. She needed hip replacement surgery. And I remember she decided to have both of them done at the same time. 90 years old. And the reason was is she couldn't get up and move around. We'd take the Lord's table over to her and have fellowship. She said, you know, I get teaching on television. She says, I miss the fellowship of the saint. So she at 90 years old went and had both hips replaced. All right, why? She did it because she wanted to be in the church. The best man at my wedding, Ed Young, before he went into his last surgery, he told me, I said, how can I pray for you? It's me and his wife. His wife is an unbeliever. How can I pray for you, Ed? He says, Terry, pray that if I can come through this and serve as much as I can right now, then so be it. If not, God, take me home. God answered his prayer. Took him home. You got an unbelieving wife standing there, listen to your husband say, you know what? If I can't serve the body of Christ to the degree I do right now, I want to go to heaven. They're suffering, people. I know they're suffering. And yet there's a lack of devotion to the bride of Christ. Verse 29, he makes this statement, it says, My intense concern. If someone is in sin, what about my intense concern? That means he had a fire in his heart. Why? And it involved with these people in Corinth. He knew the suffering. He'd been in jails. He'd been in stocks. But there was nothing more severe as his care for the bride of Christ, the church. When the church is weak, he felt that weakness. He felt that in his soul. He felt that in his heart. When the church is weak, I look at the church today and it breaks my heart. It's terrible what I see. It's terrible what I hear. I, I mean, you, and yet the people like it that way. You know, I look at this congregation and I can look at this. We're not at a mega church. I can tell you who's missing. I can tell you who consistently keeps missing. And I can tell you who I consistently pray that God will crush them and get their undivided attention. And use us if we have to. But you think about what distracts us in our lives today. And I got to ask you a silly question. Is it worth it? That's what we got to be looking at, brothers and sisters. Why? You go through trials because you are complacent with the bride of Christ. Don't be complacent with her. You have to spend eternity with her. I want to be in the wedding feast of the Lamb. But I also want every man complete in Christ. And that's what you call job security. Listen, people will disappoint you. People will reject you. People will abuse you. People will wound you. People will even betray you. Even will turn on the one who loves them the most. And you know what? There is no disease 
as great or as painful as a false accusation. Betrayal. And you know what? Our brother Paul right here is showing his heart. He is in his greatest pain. But he also understood he was going to learn his greatest lesson. I know exactly how we respond to this. Well, if they're going to treat me that way, I'm out of here. You know what? That ain't what Paul did. He kept beseeching them and loving them and reaching to them. This man had such a great love and yet was unloved. He was not trusted. And how much pain could that be? Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 12, he begins to zero in on this thing. He zeroes in on wanting them to know the depth of the pain he's in. And yet, he found strength in that deepest of pain. Think about that. That's what we will learn in the next few weeks. Let me show you something real quick and I'm going to close. Let me show you the trouble that is defined. Okay, it's in the middle of this text. Verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. He knew that the heartache that he was dealing with in the church in Corinth was having the effect of him not exalting himself. Okay? Paul tells us to take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. My hope and my prayer for each and every one of you is you begin doing it now. Because I got news for you. If you're not in trouble, you will be. If you are in trouble, God is there to help. Or if you're coming out of trouble, you can give God praise that He brought you through it. Okay? And it's universal. It's universal. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the amazing things you did with the Apostle Paul. And that, uh, Father, we are Gentiles. Know that this is the Apostle of the Gentiles. Thank you, my King, my Lord, my Savior. Lord, I pray for everybody to hear this day. That, Father, they will bow their knee unto you and say, Here I am, Lord, send me. And that, Father, we become passionate about the bride of Christ, her purpose as the pillar and the foundation of truth here on this lost and dying planet. And yet, Father, um, we would share your truth and love. As Paul loved these precious Corinthians into your kingdom, Father, may we find those who do not know you and love them into your kingdom. Father, it's such a time as this that every one of us here is here. Thank you. Praise you. In Christ's name. Amen.